In this parsha, when we speak about the, um, the sin offering, we speak about different people who bring offerings. And while a general person who transgresses brings a standard sin offering, which is a female goat or a female sheep is the standard sin offering. However, if the high priest commits a transgression, he has a special offering that he should bring, which is, the, um, which is a bull, a special kind of sin offering. And then there's a special sin offering if the king or the president, the nasi, commits a transgression. There is a special offering for the um, nasi, for the president of Israel. Now, the Torah, when saying, when describing the president sinning, the Torah uses a very interesting term. It says, Asher nasi yechta. When a president shall sin, um, using, opening it with a very unusual term, asher, which can usually mean when. But it, commentaries point out the reason why such an unusual term is used is because the word asher can also mean praised. Praised is a leader who sins and recognizes that they have done wrong. And so our sages point out that a leader who recognizes they have done wrong and admits to their transgression, if they recognize they have done wrong, it's not necessarily a bad thing, it's a good thing. Nobody is perfect. Um, regular people are not perfect, nor are leaders. And so leaders it can do bad things, but if they do, they can overcome that negative and uh, move on. So which raises the question that is very, very um, I don't know if it's important today, but it's uh, very, um, you hear about it a lot today um, because there's a lot of people in the scandal business. There's a lot of people in the business of, um, uh, there's a lot of people in the business of sharing and spreading scandals and amplifying them. And that's how they make money to feed their family. So um, as a result, you hear our um, Media is an endless story of scandals um, of all sorts of people, of all sorts of um, backgrounds, um, politicians and other famous people. And there are entire, uh, there's an entire, there, there are entire um, magazines and um, papers that are dedicated just to scandal. And so it's a, become a big part of our culture today. And so we essentially lurch in our media from one scandal to the next and everyone seems to be involved in it in one way or another, and it seems to have totally taken over our news cycle. So the question that we asked for today was, fire or forgive? What would be the ethical way, if we look at our Jewish ethics and our Jewish values, what would be the best way to respond to scandal? Now, I'm going to try to do the impossible over here. And um, although a lot of these scandals are politically related and politically motivated, I am going to try to keep this discussion politics-free. And um, I am not going to um, refer to any particular scandal that may be in the news today. Um, and I'm going to ask you all, um, I, I welcome your questions and, suggest and um, comments, but uh, to please... Let's avoid any particular scandals and any particular <laughs> politics. But like anyone, public officials or famous private people um, are not immune to making bad choices. 
People make bad choices. Um, people do bad things. Um, sometimes information that is made public is um, a bad thing someone has done. Sometimes they're only accusations. A person may have supposedly done a bad thing or is accused of doing a bad thing. Um, sometimes they're entirely not true. Sometimes people are accused of scandal and later it's discovered it's entirely not true. Sometimes it's a matter of perspective or a matter of context. Um, regardless, our Supreme Court has ruled that there are special protections for what's called the fourth estate, the special protections for the media. And so um, any slander about public officials or really any public people, so long as there was no malicious intention, is okay. In this country, you are allowed to share any negative information about anyone, even though it's completely false. If they're a public figure, so long as they cannot prove that you had malicious intention. So our um, laws, therefore, open up anyone to saying anything or um, offering any accusation against anyone. Sometimes they are true, sometimes they are not. In Jewish laws... In our Jewish values, that is unacceptable. In fact, we have a prohibition called Lashon Hara. Those that were in our Wednesday class last week would have heard about it. Um, we have a prohibition called Lashon Hara. Lashon Hara means not to speak evil about somebody else. That not only prohibits slander, but any negative information. It is forbidden to peddle information about other people. You're not allowed to speak any negative information that somebody would find offensive. You're not allowed to share it. If they wouldn't want you sharing it, you're not allowed to share it. That's also true for private information. You can't share someone's private photos as is common today, or other private information about their lives um, is forbidden to share, as well as any negative information is forbidden to share, whether true or not. And no halacha, Jewish law, makes no exceptions whatsoever for public officials or for people, public people with a public life, uh, celebrities. There are no exceptions whatsoever. You are not allowed to share negative information about someone unless, unless, unless someone is going to be harmed not knowing that information. The classic example, if you know that Joe is a crook and your good friend is about to go into business or do a business deal with Joe, then it would only be proper to warn Joe, to warn your friend that Joe is a crook. Because if you don't warn your friend that Joe is a crook, then they could get harmed. So then you're allowed to share that negative information in order to protect Joe. So in order to protect another person, you are allowed, not only allowed, required to share negative information. Or, for example, you know that a person um, has a violent past or is a bad, has other bad history and you know someone is um, dating them or considering um, marrying them, you are allowed to share and obligated to share that negative information in order that they not get harmed. But how do you know that Joe is a crook in this perspective? You have to be certain that they are a crook indeed. If you are not certain, then you cannot share it. If I am certain, I witness? Um, it's a good question. 
It depends. It depends on how serious it is, and it depends on and if you only know possibly, but it's something serious and something concerning, you share that I know that this is a serious possibility. But it must be something, we'll soon talk about um, things that do not count as evidence. What about public officials? So the same would also be for a public official. Any information that there is reason to believe that that negative information can inhibit their job, you must take whatever steps is necessary in order to make sure that it does not inhibit their job, including if necessary, if that negative thing that they did does not allow them to continue their job properly, then they cannot continue their job. And then, or if it seriously questions their trust, you can share it with the relevant parties. If that person is a public official who is appointed by the public, say in elections, then you have the obligation to share it in public. But only if it's something that can seriously question their um, only something that can seriously question their ability to do their job or perhaps the trust that people should have in them. And even then, that information would only be able to be shared once verified. Anything beyond that, just unverified accusations or things that do not directly impact their job is no one's business and you do not have the right to share it with people who do not need to know. For that matter, a public official who is not elected um, only needs to be shared by those who appointed them and those that have the ability to fire them. Nobody else needs to know. Yes? You mentioned the word believe that they are. I mean, it has to be a proven fact. It must be a proven fact. Cause... It must be a proven fact, yes. I'm going to soon get into it. I will soon talk about how you know or not. Now, so let's say a public official does commit a crime. A public official does do something wrong or commits a transgression, as we would call it in Judaism and Avera, um, transgresses the Torah command if they were a Jewish official. Um, They committed a crime. So in the rules of the Torah, nobody has immunity. Nobody is free from the criminal justice system. Everybody can be punished for their, judged and punished for their wrong actions. No matter who they are or what position they are in, everybody can be tried. Everybody, there is no automatic immunity. Everybody must follow the rules and play by the rules. And so everybody can be tried. This rule, though, there was an exception made at one point in our history due to a very specific story. There was a um, somewhat wicked Hasmonean king by the name of Yanai. Yanai did not get along with the Sanhedrin, with the supreme religious council. The Hasmonean kings were grandchildren of the Maccabees that freed Israel from the Greeks in the Hanukkah story. Um, But their children... Um, became, or they and then their children became leaders of Israel and eventually became kings, though not from the house of David, not from the royal Jewish house. They became kings on their own. And so King Yanai was a Hasmonean king. Um, at one point, one of his slaves um, murdered someone. According to Jewish law, if a slave murders someone, their um, master must, or their leader, their um, employer must come to court as well. So King Yanai, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council that was judging because it was the king's slave, they were judged by the Supreme Council, the highest council in the land, not just a regular court. And the Supreme Council insisted that the king 
show in person. So the king was upset that he found it demeaning that he was summoned to court um, for this trial. And so he came to court and he sat down. And the defendant um, in this trial, at least the beginning of the trial, was required to stand. And so Shimon ben Shatach, who happened to be King Yanai's brother-in-law and was the Av Bezdin, or the vice president of the Sanhedrin, he demands King Yanai, he says, you must stand. You're in the defendant's chair alongside the accused murderer. Um, You must stand. And um, King Yanai says, he refused to stand, and he sees that all the other members of the Sanhedrin all have this fear in their eyes. They were all afraid of him. They knew that he could punish them. He was the king. And so Yanai challenges Shimon ben Shatach, the vice president of the Sanhedrin. He says, I will stand if all the other members agree that I must stand. And he turns to the other members and he says, do you think I should stand? And they're all silent. Nobody says anything. And so he remains seated. Um, Shimon ben Shatach turns to the other members and says, you have desecrated God by refusing to stand up for what's right, even out of fear, and uh, you will all be punished by Yanai as a result. Later, Yanai gets into another much bigger dispute with the Sanhedrin, and he ends up killing most of the Sanhedrin. Um, so they, it didn't, didn't pay for them. But as a result of this, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council at the time, made a rule that a Jewish king cannot be judged, cannot stand trial. The reason for this rule was that anyone whom will not get a fair, um, will not get a fair trial because the court is afraid of them, cannot stand in trial um, because they will not get a fair trial. Um, They will be acquitted unfairly. Um, and so such a person cannot get a fair trial. So somebody in position of power to the point that the court is afraid of them, or there's reason why to believe the court should be afraid of them, cannot be tried in Jewish law. That leads to perversion of justice. Um, otherwise, anybody else can and should be tried within a Jewish court, and um, that's a value we believe in general. Um, nobody should have immunity no matter whom they are. I believe in this country, Congress does have immunity. Um, I'm not sure about our state, um, if they have immunity. Um, Definitely our president has immunity. Um, So there are, we do have immunity in this country, but in Jewish traditions, leaders are judged just like anybody else. Yes, Does that mean that the indictment, uh, without getting into politics, would violate Jewish law in Israel? Only if there's reason to believe that they would not get a proper trial, because the judges would be afraid. Okay, but let's say somebody committed a crime. A sure, go ahead. What if um, it's a non-Jewish person? Um, so the values we're talking about are Jewish values, um, but a lot of our values can be are universal values. In other words, these values are true not only for Jews. They can be applied to our country as well. And as Jews um, who live by Jewish life and Jewish values, there's no reason why we shouldn't use these values to guide our perspective and how things should... But then, but then what about innocent until proven guilty? Well, if just accused, um, then they stand trial. Now, should you, when, if they 
are convicted, then they get whatever they're convicted of. Um, what happens, though, if a person is convicted and has served their time or doesn't get time or whatever it is, or does not get, or has, it's known they committed the crime, um, they did not stand trial for whatever reason. What happens if a leader or a, trial, <coughs> a, a crime for which they do not have to stand trial, but what happens if we know that a leader has done something wrong? Can that leader then go back to or remain a leader or should they be fired? <coughs> Should we allow someone to remain in a leadership position after they have done bad things, after they have committed a crime? So, depends what bad. Very good. So the Torah tells us something very interesting. The Torah tells us in, the, in um, biblical times, we had, or in, um, in, when we had a Jewish court back in the land of Israel, um, way back when, we, um, the stand, we didn't have prisons at all. We didn't have prisons. We did use corporeal punishment. Um, the ethics of corporeal punishment is a discussion for another time. We touched on it in our Wednesday class. Um, but we did have corporeal punishment. But the Torah says that um, your brother shall be um, punished before you, or shall be whipped, uh, um, smitten before you. And so our sages point out that when the Torah describes the person you're punishing, we call him your brother. Meaning, once punished, once they have served out their sentence, once punished, they remain your brother. Or if they didn't get a sentence, even if they have done something wrong, they remain your brother, and they can go back to where they were before. So we learn from this, that even if someone has done something wrong, it's not a reason to ostracize them from society. Unless they continue to do wrong, they show no remorse, then sometimes we can ostracize them from, from society as part of their punishment. So sometimes we ostracize people from society as part of the punishment. However, once punished, someone who has done something wrong should not be ostracized by, by society, should be brought back and included in society. Once someone is punished, or if they do not need to be ostracized as part of the punishment, um, we should not fire them from their job. We should give them their jobs back, so long as there's no reasonable reason to con to, of concern that they may commit the crime again on the job. So if the job is something that, if their crime is something that can um, impact our, our belief in their ability to fulfill their job properly, say they were working at a bank, and they, um, and they embezzled funds of the bank, then you don't want to give them a job back at the bank. You could give them a different job. But um, you may not trust them in the bank, and that might take some time. We actually spoke about that on our recent Wednesday class. But other than that, other than that, if um, they just happen to be working um, as a janitor or working as a different job and they happen to have embezzled funds, the two are not necessarily connected and so you should definitely give them their job back. Someone has committed a crime and now they have moved past that crime. We should let people move past the crime. There's no reason to fire someone just because they committed a crime. What about a leader? So... If they did something wrong accidentally, we hope they own up to their mistake. It's very important that a leader owns up to their mistake. As we said earlier that this week's parsha says praised is a, is a community 
whose leader, Ashrei, Nasi, Yechda, praises a community whose leader sins or makes a mistake and owns up to it. That's the ideal leader. Leaders, a good leader is not someone who doesn't make any mistakes because all people make mistakes. A good leader is somebody who makes mistakes and owns up to them and tries to fix them. So it's okay to make mistakes, genuine mistakes, not knowingly bad malicious acts, but genuine mistakes is okay. Uh, Everyone makes mistakes, did something wrong accidentally, um, unintentionally, uh, learn from it, admit to it, own up to it, and move further. That's not a bad thing. And anyone who does something wrong accidentally, we should allow them to move further. What if they maliciously, they knowingly did something wrong? So the Mishnah tells us someone who did something seriously, like a murder, committed a murder, um, and this may also apply to somebody who um, committed a clear theft or some other serious crime, we should not allow them to continue serving in their leadership position. There's actually a debate in the Mishnah over this, but the halach in Jewish law is a leader who commits a serious crime um, should not be allowed to continue serving in their position. Why? The serious crime compromises their ability to lead, and therefore they cannot lead anymore. What? What A murder. A murder. They commit a murder. Or a clear theft. Not just kind of those borderline corruption, <laughs> but a clear theft. They actually went, they stole large amounts of money, something along those lines. This day and age, uh, one would uh, argue that uh, violence uh, or uh, Perhaps. between couples and such uh, would also rise to that level. Perhaps. I don't know. I don't know. Probably not, probably not in Jewish traditions. I don't know. Um, I don't know if that would be... Um, I guess it might depend how serious the violence was. What about full awareness of a crime committed by someone else, but full awareness and failure to do anything about it? Is that collusion? Um, How does that fall? So a crime was committed that's... I think that's a fair question. Let's talk about other less serious crimes, which I think this falls into. You've done something wrong, uh, but it's not a serious crime where you actually went and killed someone. Uh, But there's a lot of other crimes. They were wrong, um, whether as a leader in a leadership role or um, in other ways. You've done something wrong. Um, Should you um, be allowed to stay in your position or not? We're going to get to that. Very good question. But let's talk about someone whom we know they did something wrong. So the Talmud tells us that any leader who has done something wrong, this is the Jerusalem Talmud, um, but is quoted in Halachin Jewish law, any leader that does something wrong should not stay in their position um, and should be thrown out of their position for any offense they should not stay in their position anymore. Now, there is some dispute as to what sort of leader we are referring to. The term the Talmud uses is Nasi 
president. It's unclear if, and there's some debate, is this the president of the Supreme Council, which was called a Nasi, which is a religious leader? Is this the president of Israel, a civil position that was often equated with the king? Um, what sort of position is this a president? Does it include others as well? So there are actually three reasons given in halacha, in Jewish law, as to why leaders, um, why the Jerusalem Talmud says that a leader cannot remain after having committed a crime or done some, or we know that they've done something wrong. So there's three different reasons that are offered. And um, I should mention that this problem of leaders that have committed crimes or done things wrong has been a problem throughout our history. Jews are, no, not every Jew has been a saint in history, believe it or not. Uh, we've had our own share of um, bad apples over the years. Um, and we've had communities with leaders, and Jews have had many leaders, and time and again, communities have found their leaders to have done something wrong, and this halachic question came up. Should they kick the leader out or not? What do you do? So, while the Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud says clearly, kick them out, they should be fired, the question is why? Why should they be fired? So, Halachic authorities or Jewish scholars over the years, this is going back to early medieval times or the Rishonim, offer three different reasons as to why they should not be allowed to remain. One reason given is that this person who has been caught of a crime and perhaps punished for that crime is now in a position of authority and they can now use that authority that they have to get back at those who punished them, who caught them, or who punished them for their crime. And so, because of that, once someone is punished, because of we, we are concerned about revenge, they should never be allowed to hold any position of authority because of that concern that they may try to get people back. This would be similar to our original um, prohibition that was made in the days of Shimon ben Shatach, not to even try somebody who may not get a, a proper trial, recognizing that sometimes people in power abuse their power. So anyone who committed a crime, um, because of the concern that the trial and the punishment, or even being caught, um, or those who have accused them, um, they can now abuse their position to go after those people because of that concern, um, they should not be allowed to continue in a leadership position. A second reason given, that's one reason. A second reason given is that a leader has a role to guide the public. They must serve as a role model for the public. As a leader, they must serve as a role model. Once they have done wrong, they are no longer an ideal role model for the public. A third reason given why a leader should be fired once they have um, once they have done something wrong, is that leaders, um, part of leadership, uh, part of the role of a leader is a leader must be respected. And this is very important. In Judaism, we always respect leaders. 
Um, we must always recall leaders by their proper title. Um, it's very important. I've corrected people before um, that we must always call our president by the title president and our governor by the title governor. And uh, according to Jewish law, everybody must be called by their proper title because we must treat leaders with respect. And that's because Judaism is a big fan of um, structured government. It's one of the seven Noahide laws. We need structured government. Even a tyrannical government is better than no government, um, which is why we even have to respect tyrannical leaders, at least respect them. We could work to unseat them, but we must respect them. Moses respected Pharaoh, so we must always respect government. It's very important, and that's, that is because the alternative is anarchy, and anarchy is much worse. And so um, because of that, because we have to respect leaders, a leader who has lost the respect of the public because of their crimes should no longer serve in a leadership position and should be removed from their leadership position. So those are three reasons offered as to why we should, um, why leaders should be fired once they have committed a crime. Um, Firstly, they can use that position to harm those who um, caught them or who punished them. Secondly, they, can, they must serve as a role model. And thirdly, um, the leadership, require, leadership requires respect and they will no longer be respected. But now, wasn't, wasn't the problem of the carve for the king ultimately devastating? So why did they accept it? If they were to get rid of your nine... Not always was the Sanhedrin in position to get rid of the king. The result was there was no Sanhedrin. Over. They were not in position to get rid of the king in that situation. What about King David? Yeah. I mean, he did a lot of crimes. He did crime. He did a lot of good. So where, where was the, the council there? So he was not fired after he did things wrong. And um, we're going to have a class on King David in a couple <laughs> months. Um, but let me. But that's a very good point. King David was not fired. So were other many Jewish leaders that committed crimes historically were not fired. In a very famous letter, Maimonides was one of our great Jewish thinkers. He lived in the 1200s. We've we'll quoted him many times. He's most famous for his code of Jewish law called Mishnah Torah, where he has kind of an encyclopedia of Jewish law that he wrote. But he also wrote other books, including many letters that we still have from him. And so he wrote a letter to a community. A community, he would be asked halachic questions as a great Jewish expert in his day. A community asked him a letter, that there, in a letter, there was a cantor about whom there was a rumor and there were people who had claimed that he had done something wrong. It doesn't say what he did wrong in the letter, but he had did, done something wrong. And so the community was asking Maimonides, the Rambam, should they fire this cantor? So Maimonides writes that even if this claim was true, the cantor still should not be dismissed. And he goes on to write that no leader, whether a cantor, whether a member of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council of Israel, the Supreme Council of Israel didn't exist in Maimonides' days anymore because it was abolished in the 300s. Maimonides lived in the 1200s. But he's speaking in theory. Even someone who served on the Supreme Council of Israel or even a great Jewish leader should never be fired if they commit a crime. So in this letter, Maimonides has clearly contradicted what the Talmud writes and what he himself wrote in his 
encyclopedic code of Jewish law, the Mishnah Torah. And many others in many similar situations um, wrote similar things that leaders should not be fired. Leaders should not be fired in a situation where they committed a crime. They should not be fired. So clearly there are exceptions to our original rule that leaders should be fired. In fact... While the original rule was that leaders that commit a crime should be fired, the truth is that the exception is more of a rule than an exception. In other words, most of the time, leaders that commit a crime, not a major crime, but a regular crime, um, leaders that commit a crime should not be fired. Though the Talmud says they should be fired, that is the less common rule. When should they be fired and when should they not be fired? So, well, in a major in a major transgression, if they murdered and even if they stole, they clearly stole, then um, they should be fired. Sexual transgress, serious sexual transgressions, uh, maybe they should be fired. They raped someone, but other than that, um, most of the time they are not fired. What does it depend on? So it really depends on the reasonings we gave earlier. We gave three reasons earlier as to why a leader should be fired. The first reason is that they could use their position to harm those who were caught and punish them. So this would only exist in a situation where the leader has such power where they can harm others. So when a leader has a power that they can easily abuse and they were caught, and they have the ability now to abuse that power to go after those who were caught, then and only then would we fire them. However, the cantor, what's the cantor going to do? How's the cantor going to go after those who caught him? Or even a rabbi, or even a, what was called a Rosh Hakol, the president of the community. Sometimes the president of the community maybe have unlimited power. But in a place where their power is somewhat limited, is severely limited, they cannot go after those who caught them, there would be no reason to fire them. How would that apply in our current situation? Well, it would depend. People who are in positions, perhaps our representatives, in, um, in our representatives don't really have the ability to go after judges or prosecutors that have... Um, uh, that have caught them or have um, gone after them. They don't really have the reason to get uh, the ability to get them back. And therefore, one can strongly argue there is no reason to fire them just because they've done something wrong. Punish them and let them go back to their job. Other people, perhaps somebody who leads the Justice Department or a, or li, who le, or a, um, leads the um, a Supreme, judge, uh, Supreme Court judge or the like, who may have the ability to go after the people who prosecuted them, one could then argue that if indeed they can, and this perhaps is debatable in our current system where we have a, um, where we have a divided government, where technically, um, um, technically um, the court system stands independent um, of other parts of government, um, but one can argue that they have that maybe people in the executive branch have the ability to go after those who have 
um, attempted to, who have attempted to prosecute them. And then in such an instance where there is reason to believe that they will harm others and they will abuse their power, then indeed they should lose their job. The second, um, the second reason we gave was that of a role model. So it's very clear that a, the role model is only for somebody who is a religious leader. Only a religious leader is meant to serve as a role model. So say a rabbi. A rabbi serves as a role model. If a rabbi has been caught committing a crime, the rabbi should be fired because he's supposed to be a role model for the community. But somebody, the cantor, is just the leading, leads the services, doesn't need to be the role model. Um, Somebody who doesn't need to be in a role model position, definitely a civil Leader um, does not need to be a role model. The common Jewish leader was the Rosh HaKol, or a member of was called Shiva Tovayair, a member of the Jewish council um, in the Jewish community, were not necessarily role models. And even if they did bad, there was no reason necessarily to fire them. The third view is um, that the leader loses... The third reason we gave was that the leader loses respect. So this is only true, firstly... If the leader, uh, if, we're, if the, the crime that was committed is something for which the leader would seriously lose the respect of the public. And if there's reason to believe that the leader has lost the confidence of the public, then indeed that leader should be, um, should be fired, um, should lose their job. However, if, whether the crime they committed is something that people don't take seriously enough to have lost the respect of the public, or for that matter, if the public continue to respect them, then there is, despite their transgression, they respect them because of other good they've done, um, then there's no reason for them to lose their job. Um, in Judaism, traditionally, um, the um, leadership, the civil leadership in the community was elected. The, it was called the Tuve Ha'ir, the city council, the Jewish community council, and the um, president of the community were generally elected positions. And so um, there were postkim, there were halachic scholars that argued that if they're in elected position um, and they committed a crime, put them back up for election. If they manage to win the election again, then they still have the people's respect. If they lose the election, then that's evidence that they don't have the people's respect. And then, um, but let them, let them try and see if they have the people's respect or not. So, therefore, to response to the question, a leader who was, um, a leader who, wa- who was known to have committed a crime, if it's a very serious crime like a murder, definitely, um, they should lose their job. If it's a less serious crime, um, perhaps that would also be true for somebody who overlooked someone else's crime, um, then we would look at these three questions. Um, firstly, are they, um, do they have now the position to abuse those? To ab- to, can they abuse their position to harm those whom, who caught them? Secondly, um, if yes, then they should not keep, keep their job. Secondly, is their position that of a role model, which would be a religious leader? Um, and then uh, if yes, then they should lose their job. And uh, the third question would be, have they lost the respect of the public? If yes, they should lose their job. If not, they can continue serving. Now, I should add to that, that in, the, in Israel, there is a law that members of Knesset, members of the parliament, if indicted for a crime must um, resign or automatic, automatically resign from the Knesset. Um, 
And so Rav Herzog, the former chief rabbi of Israel, was asked, well, according to Jewish law, um, why should they have to resign from the Knesset? It would go against Jewish values because um, they're not a role model. They can't really use their position to abuse the prosecutor. And um, they um, haven't necessarily lost the respect of the public. Why should they have to resign? And Rav Herzog responded that if they were elected with, and the bylaws of their election included the rule that if they are indicted and they have to resign, then that is the bylaws. And so we have the ability as a country to create any bylaws we want. And so if it's already in the laws that a person has to resign within a, with, after uh, they are accused or convicted of a certain types of crimes, then um, that's a fair law and that's a fair rule and we have the right to make such rules. So now, however... It's very important when we remove a leader to make sure we are doing so solely on ethical grounds, not political ones. And in the famous letter we quoted earlier from Maimonides, where the cantor over there was not convicted of a crime, but was accused of a crime. Maimonides says even if he would have been convicted, he still should not lose his job. But he makes it very clear over there that if there are claims against somebody, that's not enough to take a job away from them. The claims must be proven first. And this is especially true if there's reason to believe that those making the claims have a political motive. In general, in Judaism, we have a very high bar of evidence. Before you convict someone, you need to be able to really, really prove they did something wrong. When the people who are testifying against someone, there's reason to believe they have a motive to harm them, their testimony is not believed. Even if they have high cost to testify. Even if, why would they say it? Or even if they took a personal hit by testifying, they perhaps embarrass themselves or take personal risk by testifying. If they have a motive to testify against someone, they, should, they would not be believed in a Jewish court. This question was asked of one of our great Jewish leaders called Ramosha Sofer, or known better as the Khatam Sofer. The Khatam Sofer, the Khatam Sofer lived in the early 19th century in, um, in Bratislav, then it was called by its Yiddish name, Preshberg. And um, it was, now today it's in Slovakia, but then it was in Hungary. And um, the Tam Sofer was recognized as the senior rabbi of Hungarian Jewry and one of the leading rabbis of his days. And he was asked about a rabbi in a city. This, is, this, happened, this happened many times, unfortunately, throughout our history. But this, the rabbi was being accused of committing some transgression. He had done something wrong. And the city was up, people in the city were up in arms. They wanted to fire their rabbi. So the Chetam Sofer, as the leading rabbi of Hungarian Jewry of his day, was asked whether this rabbi should be fired. Now the rabbi claimed he was innocent, and he claimed these people were out to get him. They had a personal beef against him, and they were out to get him. It was all political. The Chetam Sofer makes it clear that anybody who claims to know that the rabbi did something wrong. And there is reason to believe that this person has a personal dislike for the rabbi or a political problem with the rabbi. That person cannot be trusted. 
And he goes further to point out that we have a law in Jewish law. If two communities get into a fight with each other, two communities have a political fight with each other, it happens. Um, the example is they fought over a Torah scroll as to which community it belongs to. Two communities get into a fight. The communities themselves. You cannot have people from either community testifying in this case. Because they're clearly have sides, right? Members of the community are going to clearly support their community. The Chetam Sofer says the same thing is within a community. If you have political factions within a community and members of one political faction testify against members of the other political faction or make claims against members of the other political faction, don't pay attention to it. It has no value. Why? Because they clearly have a political motive. You need to have proper evidence before prosecuting any crime. And anybody who can be accused of a political motive cannot be trusted. And therefore he goes, therefore he says, until you have independent people or you have some sort of independent evidence of this, that the rabbi did something wrong, as long as he claimed he was innocent, he is innocent until proven guilty and leave him alone, you cannot fire him. So we have to be very, very careful. And this is a point that was made because our communities throughout our history, unfortunately, have Jewish communities, that is, have always struggled the one thing that we Jews have had a very hard time with throughout our history and has always been the source of our downfall is getting along. We Jews never got along. Every Jew, every Jewish community had multiple factions and we, there was always infighting. And any story about any Jewish community will tell you the story of the infighting within the communities. And that's still true today in the communities. Even when there was nothing to fight over, they would still <laughs> fight. And they say a joke about the two Jews that have two shoals. But unfortunately, this, there are plenty of communities that have Jews that have... Um, uh, Jews that have uh, tiny communities that have two shuls and they do not talk to each other. And uh, believe it or not, I've seen such communities and it, it's, it's unfortunate. But that's our history. And so, um, and unfortunately what happens and what's happened in our history and what happens also, I guess non-Jews do the same thing and the general community is that we use the criminal justice system as a way of settling political scores. And unfortunately, more often than not, claims of crimes by politicians or other important people are more often than not used to go after people we don't like. This is evidenced when all the people who dislike an individual come out gleefully when there is a claim of misconduct against them. And uh, the famous... Um, Famous law professor Alan Dershowitz has made the point, who has opposed, um, who has opposed, um, well, in general, he's a defense attorney, but he has opposed um, accusations of criminal misconduct against public officials across the board for decades, um, upsetting all sides. And he has pointed out that time and again, um, a majority of accusations, a large majority of accusations against public officials turn out um, with, end without a conviction. And not only that, most convictions end up getting overturned. And so um, 
And so unfortunately, we Jews have had this problem throughout our history. And unfortunately, some of our great communities were destroyed over infighting. Our sages said that the Second Temple was destroyed because of infighting um, and Sinat um, Chinam. And unfortunately, accusations against each other sometimes destroy Jewish communities. In the 1700s, one of the largest Jewish communities in Europe at the time, in the early 1700s, was the community of Hamburg. At the time, the Jewish name for it, for the community, was called Ahu. Ahu. The community of Ahu. It was called Ahu because there was an acronym for Altona, Hamburg, Wiesbaden, which are three towns that together today make up the city of Hamburg. Um, at the time, they were three different, under three different um, princes or dukes um, and different um, communities. Anyway, they were a united Jewish community. The rabbi of the community was a very well-known rabbi, um, former rabbi of Prague, um, called Rabionison Apeshitz. One of the very great Jewish scholar, very well-known rabbi, um, led this Jewish community. In this community, there was another great sage called Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Rabbi Yaakov Emden um, had been previously a rabbi of a town called Emden um, for whatever reason. It didn't work out, and he ended up settling in Hamburg. Rabbi Yaakov Emden accused Rabbi Yonas and Apeshitz, who was a Kabbalist, and as a Kabbalist, Rabionis and Apeshitz would write Kameas. Kameas were amulets, or little Kabbalistic um, phrases that he would give to people, on, he would write on parchment to give to people to wear. Um, and this is a practice that was practiced throughout much of Jewish history. And he accused him that he was a secret follower of the false Messiah. There was a false Messiah called Shabtai Tzvi that led Israel, that... Um, uh, from the 1600s, and he had many followers around um, the Jewish community. Um, there was a whole, it was a whole cult, Septian cult, that existed in the 1600s. And he accused this great prominent rabbi, Rabbi Yonis and Abshitz, of being a secret Septian follower. And he um, said that he found in the amulets that there were certain um, codes that really alluded to Septian beliefs. And this was this cult that he accused that he was part of. Um, Rabionis and Apeshitz attempted to defend himself. It ended up becoming a huge battle. They both called rabbis on both sides to defend them. Rabbis from across Europe took sides. It ended up going to, um, it ended up going to the civil authorities, the Duke of um, Denmark, who was the um, leader of Altona, a part of Hamburg, um, where Rabionis and Abschitz lived, um, had Rabionis and the rabbi brought to trial, and um, he won that trial, uh, being tried for being part of this Septian cult, and uh, he won that trial. And this, th this fight, eventually, Rabbi Yaakov Emden was forced to leave um, Hamburg, but this, this fight split the city of Hamburg in the mid-1700s. It also not only split the city of Hamburg, it split the German community. About this time, there were, um, this was a little bit before German Jewry were offered emancipation in the, late, in the um, later half of the 18th century. And um, this was a time where many Jews were trying to move ahead in Jewish life. As a result of this, this 
fight, this fight is one of the many things or one of the important factors that are blamed in Jews being turned away from the Jewish community because the whole Jewish community of Germany was split. As a result, many Jews turned away from the Jewish community. Within two, three, many Jews moved away from Judaism. Within two, three generations, most of German Jewry was lost. Most German-German Jews by, in the 1800s assimilated. Very large number of them converted to Christianity. And uh, unfortunately, it, took, it wasn't until the 1800s where the assimilation wave, the late 1800s where the assimilation wave of Jews in Germany finally stopped and um, a strong Jewish community um, continued much smaller um, in Germany. But there was a very strong assimilation. It was due to, probably partly due to, um, to emancipation and other freedoms given, maybe due, due to the Enlightenment movement, but definitely part of it was due to that fight and a couple other big fights that split German Jewry. And so, and they all meant well. Both sides probably meant well. Both sides meant the best. Nevertheless, um, it caused great harm. And so it's important to remember that... Um, most of the time, where there are political, where there are accusations of important people committing crimes, they're most of the time politically motivated, and even if there's truth to them, they're often driven still by political motivations. And so, therefore, it has to be taken with great care and great concern. Not that politicians don't commit crime or leaders don't commit crime, and sometimes they need to be fired, but it must be taken with great concern. And for that reason, and um, for that reason, our founding fathers recognized that in order to impeach, say, a sitting president, um, they needed a, um, they can only be impeached for high crimes and treason, and they needed two-thirds of the Senate to vote for their impeachment. So, um, then that is why um, the, the Torah were told about a great fight that there was between, took place between um, Moses and Korach, a cousin of his, that fought against Moses and challenged Moses. And the Torah says, Mo Moses commands us not to be like Korach. And our sages say we are not to be involved in political fighting. We're not supposed to be involved in infighting. We're allowed to stake out positions. We're allowed to run for public office. We're not allowed to be involved in dirty political fights. And so um, that's within our Jewish communities, and the same should be within the general community, um, work to clean up politics rather than to go after those who are um, accused of different things, rather than focus on crimes. And remember, the accusation of crime, publicly accusing people of crimes, is Lashon Hara, and forbidden to share in Jewish law. We're much better off focusing on policy. We're much better off. Unfortunately, what happens in our public discourse is we give up on policy, to focus on um, the dirty information. Um, our media has an incentive to do that because that's what sells better. Um, but in, and that's what people like. But our Jewish values teach us not to focus on the individual, not to share negative information about people, to be very careful um, that it's, there are no political motives and only, um, and only if a person has definitely committed a crime, only if it will harm their job either in that they lose our respect or that they are a religious leader and they can no longer serve as a role model or that they may abuse their power now, only in those situations would we actually fire them. So 